0: Welcome to the Indie Matters podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered, and we'll look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site that can be found at thenevadaindependent.com. Joined today, as I always am, by a couple of my reporters. Jackie Valley is here. Say hi, Jackie. Hello. And Riley Snyder is here today again. Say hi, Riley. Hey, John. So. A busy week, as usual, with the centerpiece, Jackie, being the big extravaganza, celebrating. The Raiders are here. When's the first game,
1: Jackie? Well, if all goes well, they're hoping by fall of 2020. (laughs) But they did have
0: a big celebration today, as only Las Vegas can do it. This week, I mean, as only Las Vegas can do it, right? It
1: was quite the shindig. You know, it started early in the morning. I drove by there at about 11, and there were people already tailgating just outside the perimeter, hoping to catch a glimpse of it. They weren't even invited to the very uh, limited guest list. yeah, there was a huge tent erected on the site. Uh, They had fifty eight beams of light representing all of those victims of the Las Vegas shooting. You know it was a largely dressed up suit and tie type of fair. And so you know, it was something only Las Vegas could deliver, really. I mean, we celebrate buildings being raised. So naturally we would celebrate buildings going up as well. And this was certainly that 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 event <laughs> and, and the governor was there, yeah, and- that. Yeah, it was uh, Governor Sandoval was there, the NFL commissioner Roger Goodell, uh, Raiders owner Mark Davis, Raiders president Mark Bedain, all the major players who were involved in bringing this to Las Vegas, notably uh, the lawmakers and others in the community who were critical, weren't there (laughs)
0: You know, it was interesting, too, because, and, and people should go on the Nevada independent.com and read Jackie's story, because I thought your lead was great, because it reminded me that essentially uh, Brian Sandoval decided to go through with this very controversial $750 million infusion of public money, which was, uh, it is, I think it's still controversial in some in, in, in some areas, but he basically talked about uh, the, uh, 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 Mark Davis the way that uh, George W. Bush talked about Vladimir Putin. He essentially <laughs> looked him in the eye and, and said, I trust you, right? Isn't that essentially what he said? Yeah,
1: that's what he said. He called him a, a man of integrity and said he followed his word. And, you know, it is striking to me in some ways because he hasn't been the total face of the stadium deal in a lot of ways. It's been Steve Hill head of GOED, and um, Steve Sisalak, the Clark County Commission Chairman.
0: In case people don't know what GOED is, it's the Governor's Office of yeah. Economic <laughs> Development. Steve Hill has essentially negotiated all these major deals for uh, the the governor. He's, he's actually not the head of, he's not going to be the, is, is he gone already, Riley?
2: I believe so, but I have to double.
0: Yeah, he's, okay. he's going to go and work for the Convention Authority. He's leaving and and probably going to be succeeded by Paul Anderson, the, the former Assemblyman. But uh, that, that's that's for a different podcast. Uh, but Steve Hill, is Negotiated all these deals was there. I, saw, I think he had a hard hat on and was doing shoveling.
1: Yeah, the first yeah. Meeting. So, I mean, Steve Hill and Steve Sislack and uh, Tommy White of the Laborers, um, they've been the faces of this at the Stadium Authority meetings, going all the way back to the um, Infrastructure Committee meetings a year or so ago. But I think people tend to forget that it was actually Brian Sandoval who. Who really kind of locked the deal with Mark Davis at the, the very end when they met in their governor in the governor's Mansion just before the special session
0: right there was a special session and, and it essentially got through fairly easily that was a people forget how far we've come from that special mm-hmm. session now when Sheldon Adelson was deeply involved in this he is he essentially had a falling out with the Raiders now Bank of America has essentially picked up his part of it I was interested to see Andy Abood uh, Sheldon Adelson's right-hand guy was there uh, and, and so maybe everyone is just going to be, be friends now, now that we're getting this stadium.
1: Yeah, I think the idea is that now that it's truly happening, let's embrace it and hope that it is good for everyone in the long run.
0: The truth is, this wouldn't have happened without Sheldon Adelson. The, he, it was not just his idea, which it was, and he had it years before this happened. But without his political juice, this never would have been done. I have a feeling he's going to be back into this in some way. But that's that's mm-hmm. just my gut feeling about Vegas. One more thing before we move past this. The other issue that's still outstanding that actually came up during the special session in kind of a quiet way, and then more so afterwards, is this so-called community benefits agreement that the state senate majority leader uh, uh, Aaron Ford uh, uh, essentially personally negotiated with Andy Abood, who I mentioned before, when Sheldon Allison was involved. But now it seems to be in limbo, right, Jackie?
1: I wouldn't say limbo. It's just a very long, dragged-out process to bring it together. And it's a little bit watered down from what Senator Ford unveiled more than a year ago.
0: Watered down in terms of the amount of money. He said $100 million, it's going to be less than $100 million now?
1: Yeah, well, there's not a specific money price tag in the community benefits plan. And that's been one of the points of contention in this all along. If we think back to fall of 2016, shortly after the special session, Senator Ford met with Andy Abu. They had this big press conference and they unveiled this very uh, rough outline of what it would include. And there wasn't even a formal document. It was just basically a set of bullet points. Right. So that included some, you know, money earmarked for this is how much it would benefit the community and whatnot. Now, you know, obviously Adelson's out, Abood's out, so it's really been up to the Raiders to put this together as the legislation had mentioned. So when it came together, it's mostly just talking about the quotas for hiring minority. And female workers, and minority-owned and female-owned businesses, uh, veterans, that type of thing. Um, there is a clause uh, guaranteeing fifteen percent of contracts to s- local small businesses. Um, that was also written into the original legislation, right. though, so it was just carried over into the community benefits plan. So, yeah, it's only it's a ten-page document. Uh, people in West Las Vegas are upset because they really wanted it to be more of a zip code oriented plan that would directly benefit their
0: community. Zip code oriented meaning you'd have to hire a certain number of people from the zip code?
1: Right, yeah. That it would have language in the community benefits plan that would somehow guarantee that their community would be lifted up in one way or another. Um it doesn't do that, however, you know that the people crafting it are saying, well, you know these are it's we're supposed to be opening this up to everyone in the community, not just one specific neighborhood, and on top of that we are guaranteeing X number of workers from the minority community and so forth. So do we know how far away we are from this thing actually being done? <laughs> I think we'll see another draft in December. There are essentially the Raiders and then the Stadium Authority are a little bit at odds with two issues. Uh, one is the uh, the fact that it says, you know, we we want 50 X number of hour work hours done by minority and female workers. But it doesn't really have the same teeth in terms of, how many community or minority and female-owned businesses are, and so they want the stadium authority is advocating for more, like tougher language saying let's let's not just encourage minority and female-owned businesses, but let's actually set a real target and goal. Um, and then the other point is that it it right now it says, you know, we want x number of hours once the stadium is completed, minority and female workers filling these jobs on event days. Um, State Authorium's beef is that, well, why just event days? Why can't we have a targeted number of minority and female workers, both full-time and part-time?
0: And so uh, I know I said I'm gonna move on but but and Riley's being very patient with mm-hmm. me today which is unusual for Riley but uh, I, I, one other thing Jackie is that there's still some unresolved other unresolved issues, right like there's the parking issue we still don't and there's still some zoning issues are, are, are there not have they, have they, do they have all the county approvals yet?
1: No, they don't. so the, those are still coming. Uh, there's a bunch of agreements that still need to be signed uh, essentially the legal documents that push all this forward. At the local level, and those are those are slated to be done by February.
0: <laughs> so it's still moving along. All right, Riley. Uh, we talked about the big business slash political story of the week. The big. Purely political story that we talked a lot about on this podcast, and people should go to NevadaIndependent.com to see all our coverage of it. Are these recalls that have been uh, uh, planned uh, by the Senate Republicans, and, and, and or maybe it's just organic from the grassroots? I'm, I'm, I'm the not, voters, John. The voters. The yes. voters. So one of them is one of them has already uh, been declared a failure of Independent Senator uh, Patricia Farley this week. They turned in signatures against uh, the second Democratic state senator, Nicole Cannizzaro after turning them in for Joyce Wood. House, what is going
2: on? Yeah, uh, before I start, I just want to say, you said this a few minutes ago, but congrats, John, for being the first person to ever compare Mark Davis to Vladimir Putin. I don't <laughs> think anyone's ever done that before. You sure? Uh, yeah. if I could go back and look at, like, Sports Talk Radio, but I'm pretty sure no one thinks of <laughs> Vladimir Putin and bull Cuts uh, in the same I, I, I,
0: I, I appreciate that. It's an original thought it from is, the editor. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often.
2: <laughs> so anyway, uh, the backers of this attempt to recall State Senator Nicole Canizzaro, they've been doing this for 90 days. This was one of three recall efforts like you mentioned they turned in um, about 1900 more signatures than they needed under Nevada law you need to turn in 25 percent signatures of voters who voted in the last election that's last election total not just that state Senate turnout for for that state Senate district she was elected in 2016 she's a political newcomer so this is the the second recall effort that's qualified just the bare number of signatures but it's by no means the end of the effort the Clark County Register, who is sort of like the, the guy who oversees elections in Clark County, now has to go and do a count of 5% of the signatures that were turned in. He'll then turn that into the Secretary of State and they will – Give an official verification number some of these signatures might be from people who didn't live in the district during that election time might be people who weren't registered to vote the democrats themselves are doing everything they possibly can to prevent this from going to a special uh, election they've done similar things with state senator Joyce Woodhouse who again is also being recalled where they've have laboriously gone through all of these signatures and tried to find one people contact people who signed and ask them to like unsign find people who didn't qualify under the the recall needs. They've submitted, I think it was 4,000 or 5,000 signatures on the Woodhouse recall petition that they think should be thrown out, and they're going to do a similar thing for Cannizzaro.
0: It's interesting because uh, uh, the, the, there is an actual recall statute that you referred to, and that's where this. In case people don't know, uh, it says that you have to sample five percent of the signatures, and then if it reaches a certain threshold, I think if it's below ninety percent, it doesn't it doesn't qu- qualify automatically. Then uh, it's probably going to be close. It di- it did pass that threshold on the Woodhouse, and that's why it was qualified. The Democrats have since. Uh, filed a lawsuit on that based on those 5,000 odd that they say don't qualify, just on their face they say, and then they raise issues about signatures not matching signatures in in the lawsuit, which uh, uh, Riley has posted on on Nevada Independence uh, website. Canizaro's district that the, the, they are going to wait, we assume, to see what the 5% uh, uh, evaluation shows, which they're hoping to get done before Thanksgiving, I'm told by the by the registrar. Uh, And then they'll probably file another lawsuit if it does, right? Isn't that what we expect?
2: There's a lot of lawsuits and a lot of legal (laughs) documents in my life for the next month and a half. Um, So yeah. There's
0: two lawsuit tracks on this. So we should explain to people. There are state lawsuits and then there's a federal lawsuit that you're following as well. Right.
2: So the federal lawsuit is something that was brought by Mark Elias. He's this Democratic super lawyer um, who was Hillary Clinton's general counsel. Him and the former uh, general counsel for the Nevada State Democratic Party. Followed the lawsuit basically challenging Nevada's recall statute on its face. And, and these recalls in particular, they say there's no real reason to bring them forward. So they moved for a what's called a preliminary injunction. They basically just want to get a court to say no election, none, stop, stop everything. They have oral arguments set for that for the end of the month. The state lawsuit has to do more with the signatures themselves, what, what you were mentioning earlier
0: so uh we, we know that they're relatively close on both of these, and so that's why the Democrats are challenging uh, they're essentially this essentially is going to be in court for a while, and probably the state uh, issue is going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. I gather from talking to both sides, they're expecting it to end up. Uh, there and this is going to be a precedent setting case you would think right on, on how recalls can, can be done and, and, and uh, unless they change the law in, in in the next legislative session because people should know who don't follow this is Crazily closely as we do, Riley. That the the Constitution allows elected officials to be recalled for any reason after I think after they've been in office for six months. You don't you don't need uh, a a reason, uh, and so they this has been initiated because the Republicans they have a very bad uh, a political map in 2018. They can't win any seats, so they're trying to do this uh, that way. But uh, this might actually go into the new in the year now. It seems like it could it could take that long.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. Is like no election schedule is set. And like you said, it's precedent sending. I think Democrats are, you know, crying foul on every single part of this. But if it qualifies and it goes forward, this is an arrow in their quiver as well. If, you know, a Republican wins a very close state Senate district, why not try to recall him two years later and hope that you get a low turnout election and are able to pump enough money in to win that, that seat back? You know, the governor has weighed in on this. A, a few other folks have weighed in on this is saying they don't like it. It's an abuse of the process. Um, and yeah, it is going to be in court and it is going to, you know, attract a lot of eyeballs and attention, especially nationally, because of the implication it has on redistricting, which will be up in 2020. You know, Democrats want to have control of both houses of the state legislature to be able to control that process. Republicans want to, um, you know, also control it so they can have a, a say in the process as well. And like you said, they don't have the best prospects going into the 2018 election. That's a
0: great point, Riley, people miss uh, on this, is that the governor, who the governor is and who the legislature is going into the 2021 session, uh, which is a couple of sessions from now, they will redraw the political lines in in the state for the congressional districts, for all of the political subdivisions. And that's, that's the long-term strategy uh, that that is going on uh, here now. Uh, uh, we should also tell people that uh, uh, Mark Hutchison, the lieutenant governor, who is whose law firm is overseeing these recalls, has told people he is going to actually argue these cases. So you're going to have Mark Hutchison, the lieutenant governor, against the. The uh, aforementioned super lawyer Mark Elias. This is really going to be a spectacle, and it's going to be a national story, I think, uh, 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 eventually. And so, you're a lucky guy, Riley. Yeah, you,
2: it's like the political nerd Olympics. That's right. <laughs> that's best right. of the best.
0: And so, you should be thanking me every day, don't you think?
2: But the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning. That's John. what I
0: thought <laughs> exactly, Riley. So, Jackie, uh, back to another story that you did uh, uh, th- th- this week. Speaking of the sands. Uh, uh, I don't think too many people know that this is going on Mm -hmm. since they've heard a lot about T-Mobile and and the Golden Knights and all the music events that are going on there, and they've heard about this stadium. But there is another proposed arena on the drawing board, no?
1: Yeah. um, The Sands and Madison Square Garden Group, which obviously has the famous, iconic (laughs) home of the New York Knicks in Manhattan as well as many other venues across the country, have essentially partnered to bring what they're terming as a music venue. Don't say the word arena around them. They'll adamantly deny that's what it is. Um, But stop for a second. Is that because they
0: don't want to see it as a competitor with T-Mobile? Why are they making such a big deal about that?
1: I think so. I mean, I think, you know, we have T-Mobile arena. So to call it a music venue sets it apart and makes it seem new and unique. They're also saying that it won't, host any athletic events, that it'll be for entertainment and music only. But they have
0: to compete, you would think, Mm -hmm. with T-Mobile for music acts, right? Oh, yeah. They're about the same size, right?
1: Well, it's not just T-Mobile. I mean, if you look at the strip landscape, you have the Mandalay Bay Events Center, you have the MGM Arena, you have the new... Concert venue at Monte Carlo, I forget the name of it. And then you have Access Access Theater at Planet Hollywood. I'm probably missing a few, too. So this is there's quite a few. Some are more intimate settings. This looks like it'd be on a larger scale. They haven't exactly set a seat count, but when they announced last year, they said it would be somewhere in the range of 17,500 seats. So that's pretty spacious.
0: Yeah. And where exactly
1: is this? So if you are on... Koval Lane behind Palazzo and Venetian. You'll come up to the corner of Koval and Sands, and there's actually a Wynn parking garage right there. Um, it's uh, it's a little weird. Wynn apparently owns that s- a small slice of land right there, but then immediately behind it, Sands owns a larger chunk of land, roughly 18 square acres of land where the, the music venue is slated to go.
0: And so this is still in the early stages, right? They're just the plans have been submitted to the county? We're a long way, way from this getting approved.
1: Yeah, it is. So it was way back in May 2016 that the companies Sands and um, Madison Square Garden announced that they were hoping to do something like this. But it wasn't until October 20th that they submitted what's called a pre application with the county. And pre applications are only necessary when it's deemed a high impact project. So it's something that's obviously bigger, going to draw more people to the area. And so the county requires this pre application so they can feed it out to different agencies to take a look at it and basically ID any problems before it gets further along in the planning process. So that's where they're at right now. It's um, I met with the county planner who's in charge of it this week, and he has this gigantic binder of paper. And really, it's just these large sheets of paper with black markings on them outlining what it looks like, where it is. It's not really in the 3D architectural rendering phase yet, at least what's been submitted. So they're meeting with the developers sometime later this month, and then the expectation is, is that it'll probably go to the formal application process in December.
0: It's really interesting because, as you mentioned, there's at least half a dozen uh, you can call them whatever you want, arenas, music venues, venues, period, in this town. And and so there's going to be huge competition, you would think, for all of these acts. But these people, Madison Square Garden, the Sands, these are not dummies. They must uh, they must think that there's a, a niche in, in, in the market that's not being filled.
1: Yeah, and I mean, when they announced this more than a year ago, they said um, something to the effect of that it was an underserved music market in Las Vegas. And they said that based on the success of the Forum in L.A., which they have since taken ownership of and revamped, that they think you know, something similar could do very well here. I mean, obviously Vegas is trying to change its image a little bit. We're, we're not so reliant on gaming, or we don't have, as the millennials aren't gambling as much, so they're looking at sports and music and other forms of entertainment as the, the money
0: makers. Yeah, they know something that's way above my pay grade <laughs> to, to think that that's actually gonna be viable. All right, back to politics, Riley. Uh, you, you attended an event, uh, you actually uh, had to get up past your usual uh, – n- uh, um, before your usual noon rising time. In the crack to- of
2: 10 is a great time to <laughs> wake up and normal for people my age, John. That's right. I forgot about fine. that.
0: Me and my, my, why did I hire these millennials? A- anyhow, uh, uh, you went to a, a, a fairly unusual, I think uh, – um, event where you had three congressional candidates uh, this far out from an election appearing before Hispanics in Politics, which is a very old, storied group here. Uh, We always have this breakfast at uh, Doña uh, María's near downtown. And uh, there was a lot said there.
2: Yeah. So uh, true Riley heads know I love going to these congressional candidate forums. I've done it throughout the 2016 cycle. And this was one of the first ones of this one. Are there Riley heads? There are my mom. Oh, okay Uh, Grandma (laughs) is a big fan of me. Um, (laughs) So... This was at Hispanics and Politics. It was uh, Wednesday morning and it had State Senator Scott Hammond, former State Assemblywoman Victoria Seaman, and Susie Lee, who's a wealthy philanthropist, nonprofit leader, community advocate. And it's very, like, rare to have all these people in the same building in the same place at once. So it was kind of strange to see them all sitting at the same table. They're all running for this very important office and they – there's a lot of like outside money and a lot of stakes in this congressional race. It's Nevada's 3rd congressional district, it covers Henderson, the southern part of the state. It's one of the swing it is the swingiest district in Nevada, one of the swingiest nationwide. It's one of I think 40 like true swing districts. The current representative Jackie Rosen is leaving to run for Senate, so it truly is an, an open seat and there's a lot of attention being paid. But the, the, the event itself was sort of strange because it was sort of just a like a rehashing of the 2015 legislative session, which is when Victoria Seaman served as an assemblywoman, so she talked about what she did there. Scott Hammond talked a lot about the Educational Savings Account Program, which go back to like episode six or seven when we talked about that a bunch <laughs> during the 2017 session. And uh, Susie Lee focused a lot on national issues, which makes sense. She doesn't have any political – experience other than running for office in in 2016 in the 4th Congressional District. So I did follow-up interviews with all of these folks to try and get more out of them on a couple of the issues they would face in Congress. Uh, Susie Lee, obviously, is opposed to the Republican tax deal that just passed today. We're recording this on a Thursday. She said, ending DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, was a barbaric move by the Trump administration and wants to support a path Citizenship for for these kids. What was interesting was what she didn't say. She didn't say she would support a public option, which is sort of a government-run like alternative that's in insurance marketplaces that kind of got spiked during the first, or, or during the initial uh, negotiations of the Affordable Care Act. That's odd because Jackie Rosen essentially supports public option. Reuben is sporty He said has said he supports public option. Catherine Cortez Masto backs it. She also said didn't want to talk at all about the the concept of. A single-payer system, sort of socialized health care It's something a lot of 2020 Democratic presidential candidates have focused on, something Dina Titus has focused on. It's sort of like a litmus test for a lot of folks on the left. She also said she wouldn't want to commit to backing Nancy Pelosi as a majority leader or head of the Democratic caucus, which is weird because she had a fundraiser with Nancy Pelosi like a week or two ago. I thought
0: that was really interesting too. Yeah, you got her to say that.
2: Yeah, go yeah. on. Um, so I, I asked and, you know, she – I think they're aware because it is a very swingy district and Nancy Pelosi is still unpopular even though she's been a little bit out of the limelight since Democrats lost control of the House. Um, you know, she's not popular. I don't think swing voters really like Nancy Pelosi. We get
0: press releases from the national Republicans attacking uh, the, the the Democrats here for being too close to Pelosi. And when Pelosi came to town, they sent out. So they clearly think that she's a negative, And that's maybe why Susie Lee was dancing around it.
2: Yeah, which is funny because, again, she's going to fundraisers. <laughs> right. But um, awkward text between Nancy and Susie, I guess, this morning. <laughs>
0: Probably so. I asked
2: a bunch of similar questions to uh, Scott Hammond, again, a state senator, and Victoria Seaman asked him specifically about these new sexual misconduct allegations that have gone up against Roy Moore, the former Alabama chief justice who's running for Senate. And uh, various reports have surfaced this week of these uh, allegations of sexual misconduct with underage women or underage teenage girls in the 1970s when he was a deputy district attorney in Alabama. So I asked because we've been asking, you know, the both of our senators, people running for Senate, neither of them really wanted to talk about it because it's a very uncomfortable issue. They don't think they don't want to weigh in on Alabama politics when they're running for a congressional seat. Um, I think it's a very divisive issue among like Republican primary voters. Uh, Victoria Seaman told me that she doesn't think we should, you know, rush to judgment before anything happens or convicted in like the court of public opinion and then just kind of ended the the interview there. And then Scott Hammond said, no, you're the first person to ask me about this and I don't condone sexual assault, obviously, but it's up to the voters of Alabama to decide. So it's interesting to see sort of the the, uh, the the breadth of responses that Republicans have to these Roy Moore allegations there's been a lot of pressure I think on Dean Heller our Nevada senator who's up for re-election in 2018 on Danny Tarkanian and the guy who's challenging him in the Republican primary to come out on this, so it was interesting to see where they they lay it on that.
0: And they've they've gone back and forth all week. We should tell people Danny Tarkanian and Dean Heller <laughs> on Roy Moore with Heller, uh, making it seem like he's you know always been outraged by all of this and disavowing Moore when Tarkanian's doubled down twice now on at least on support on sticking with Moore, right?
2: Yeah, Danny has put out releases and gotten in Twitter wars. He talked to me today and said they were outright lies, and he was. You know, shocked but not shocked they would do this and turn it into an issue. It's been interesting to see from the Heller folks because they sent out a very tepid statement to like two or three media outlets last week. This news broke last Thursday. Um, came out stronger and said he should step down this week and now they're using it as a cudgel against... Tarkanian in that primary.
0: I should mention to people in case they're wondering, and anybody wants to yell at us, we are recording this. As Riley mentioned on Thursday, that event happened on Wednesday. The Al Franken allegation that came came out came out today, so there was no opportunity to ask them about that. But we have asked the delegation about that. We have a story uh, that, that, that is published today uh, on that. One other thing about the meeting at Hispanics and Politics. Victoria Seaman already has a record of running far to the right using the tax increase of 2015 against another assemblyman to win a state senate nomination, which she lost uh, barely to Nicole Cannizzaro, whom we mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, uh, Scott Hammond voted for that tax increase in 2015. What was the dynamic like between the two of them? Could you tell?
2: Victoria Seaman was um, out of character slightly and did not you know, make fun of Scott Hammond to his face. I think part of it is that Hispanics in politics really isn't geared... A typical Republican primary voter like audience. <laughs> right. It's a lot of politics, people connected people. So I don't think she got too far into it. This is going to be the same thing that came up in the 2016 primary in that congressional district where Michael Roberson, the state Senate, then majority leader, who's now running for lieutenant governor, tried to run for Congress and then just got hammered by every candidate for voting for the 2015 tax increase. Hammond also voted for it, didn't talk about it at all, just focused almost exclusively on his background educational savings accounts and various other issues. I think they they know it's a, a liability. It didn't really come up today, but at other events, at other more Republican primary voter-friendly events, I think that it, it, it will come up, and it will be interesting to see how he answers that.
0: And that primary, we should tell people, is going to be one of the more fascinating primaries to watch next year. There's there's multiple candidates in it. Michelle Mortensen, who was a consumer reporter, consumer affairs reporter for Channel 8, the CBS affiliate, is in that race. And there's a former chairman of the Clark County Republican Party who's also in that race. And so that's, that's going to be very, very uh, interesting and spirited. Susie Lee essentially has uh, a no uh, opposition. Well, uh, did you at least get some breakfast, Riley? Did you have coffee? Because I know it was rough for you going to that.
2: <laughs> Ethically, I felt I couldn't eat the tamales you at Don cut, Maria's. What but about I, the coffee? I did have a cup of coffee. They have good so coffee there. They, they do they, have great they, coffee. Yeah, so and, in and full transparency. <laughs> <laughs> in
0: full transparency. Riley had the coffee. We will, we will so you podcast viewers and listeners get that first. All right, let's wrap this up and t- take a look ahead to what's coming. We like to give our podcast listeners a, a preview. Jackie, what are you working on?
1: I'm working on a story about the housing market up in northern Nevada. Um I went up last October or last month and took a drive to Fernley. Got the the grand tour. It's actually a very cute town. So what we're seeing is growth in Fernley because of the people being priced out of the Reno area. But there's a bigger question at play and I think that's, you know, is are we on the verge of another bubble or is it really a housing crisis? So talked to numerous folks up in that region, housing experts, government types, et cetera. And so we're going to dig into that this weekend.
0: That's great. That's a great story. And Fernley, we should point out to people in case they're not that familiar with the geography. There's right near uh, Trick, which is where uh, Tesla and a lot of the other uh, development is going on up there. And that's really spiked the market up there too, right? A lot of people told you that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the Trick is kind of uh, a little bit, almost halfway between uh, Reno proper and Fernley. So, you know, it's Very easy for them to just get on the highway and make a right instead of a left. We'll
0: we'll look forward to that story.
1: Riley, what are you working
0: on?
2: Uh, Sorry, podcast listeners. I'm going to talk about energy Mm -hmm. yet again. Keep the streak alive. Here come the weeds. Yeah. I think I said this uh, (laughs) last week and uh, subsequently delayed the story. But I'm doing kind of a a look back, a history lesson at what Nevada did in the late 1990s around energy deregulation which on its face sounds like a really boring topic, but it is really interesting. Everything important in energy world that's happened in the past two decades came out of these like two legislative sessions and these thousands of pages and thousands of man hours that energy regulators put in to try to study how to deregulate Nevada's energy market. We ultimately didn't, largely because uh, wholesale energy markets, California's energy market just totally collapsed in the late 90s, as everyone knows, the rolling blackouts, all of that. But a lot of the conversations that we're having in 2017 were had in nineteen ninety nine, not nineteen nineteen. Uh, hopefully, there's not a lot of. <laughs> That's
0: your next project. Oh
2: no. <laughs> so yeah, it'll be a look back at that. What you know, we learned back in that process. What many of these people are still around, or still involved in the process. Um, so it'll it'll be an interesting look. So why, why is
0: just uh, uh, real quickly why why the twenty year gap? In other words, why why was it discussed back then a lot, and then essentially you haven't heard that much about it uh, in the intervening time until now.
2: There was a movement nationally in the mid-1990s to move towards deregulated energy markets. This was driven a lot by large businesses, uh, the Southern Nevada Water Authority, the Mirage. Uh, a bunch of big guys wanted to go independent. There was a consumer movement as well to have like more choice. It was the 90s. It was deregulation. It was Everyone wanted to, to, to deregulate. Um, the legislature sort of got into this. Uh, a state assemblyman by the name of Brian Sandoval and several others co-sponsored a, a resolution saying we need to look into this. The state... Uh, Pulled back when the, the energy crisis hit, Governor Kenny Gwynn sort of like put the halt on everything and eventually they, they dropped the entire effort. Now in 2017, as we've talked about many times, there's a constitutional ballot question that's up that would force us to go to a retail energy market as opposed to having a monopoly service where it's the same company that does generation, transmits the, the power through transmission and then sells it to you.
0: It's interesting that, uh, you know, all that's old is new. Uh, uh, Brian Sandoval saying we need to look at this. That's like every press release we get from uh, Brian Sandoval now as governor, is it not? (laughs) Pretty close. All right, Riley and Jackie, thanks for coming uh, and being on the podcast. Thanks to everybody for listening. It's all that time that we have for this edition of uh, Indie Matters. Uh, Again, you can go and find us at the NevadaIndependent.com. You can also give us ideas, criticism, praise. You can gush if you want at ideas at the NVIndie.com. You can also go on iTunes and subscribe and rate us. We're on Google Play and uh, some other platforms, too. And I also, as always, want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV for making sure that this podcast gets done. And, of course, the man who makes it all happen for us, Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer who makes us all sound podcast, podcast smooth. smooth listen to how podcast you know that was not guys that was the least inspired <laughs> podcast smooth i've heard in a long time but it's going to have to do it's getting close to thanksgiving they're already in vacation mode these millennials i don't know what to do anyhow i'm tom Rawson. i'm the editor of the independent thanks for listening to Indy matters we'll talk to you next week
2: Is a great time to <laughs> okay. wake up and be normal for people my age, John.
0: You podcast viewers, you listeners, get that first. <laughs>